Well, we are coming down the home stretch. We are about to conclude our months-long study of the book of Ecclesiastes. I'm going to ask you to turn with me to Ecclesiastes chapter 12. And we're going to begin reading with verse 9. Ecclesiastes 12, and I'll be reading verses 9 through 14 through the end of the chapter. Please give your full attention to God's word. Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge, weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. The preacher sought to find words of delight, and uprightly he wrote words of truth. The words of the wise are like goads. And like nails, firmly fixed are the collected sayings. They are given by one shepherd. My son, beware of anything beyond these. Of making many books, there is no end. And much study is weariness of the flesh. The end of the matter, for this is the whole duty of man. Fear God, bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or evil. Well, during these months of studying this challenging book of Ecclesiastes, I've said many times, this is really a philosophy book. It addresses the most foundational question of anyone's philosophy. I don't care what your religion, I don't care what your worldview, I don't care what philosophy you ally yourself with. You have to answer this most basic question before you can move on to the other questions of philosophy, that is, what is the meaning and purpose of life? What is the meaning and purpose of life? Matter of fact, one of the great philosophers of history, Plato, thousands of years ago, described a human being in this way. He said, a human being is a being in search of meaning. His point in saying that is that that's what separates us from the rest of the creatures on the planet, is that we care about meaning and purpose in life. Dogs, cats, rabbits, they don't care about the meaning and purpose in life. We do. That's what makes us different. We are human beings. Arthur Brooks wrote an article for Atlantic Magazine. Arthur Brooks is not a Christian, doesn't have a biblical worldview. But he addressed the question of how do we find meaning and purpose in life, and he said that there are three components to a meaningful life. Three components to a meaningful life. One. Seeing that things happen for a reason. Two, having goals or a sense of mission to your life. And three, believing that your life is making a difference in the world. So that if you can attain those things that you believe, that that's true about your life, then you will have a sense of meaning and purpose. Well, that's what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to wrestle with. But he does it in an unusual way. And if you've been with us through all these studies, I apologize for explaining this again. But realizing that somebody's new almost every Sunday and realizing that this is such a key to understanding the book, it, it really is worthwhile to repeat again what's unique about the book of Ecclesiastes. Let me stress again that the author is a believer. He is, is a, a part of Old Covenant Israel. He may have been King Solomon. We can't be quite sure of that. But he was a wise man 
who was a believer in the God of the covenant, the God of Israel. But he wants us to wrestle with this question of the meaning in life, and he does it in a unique way, unlike any other book in the Bible. What he does is he, he introduces what he wants to do at the beginning, at the beginning of chapter 1, but then he shifts into a different voice. And he writes from the perspective of the one that the ESV translates, the, the word in the original Hebrew means one who gathers people in order to teach them. Now, it could be a preacher, but because philosophy is his subject, I'm calling him the professor. And so the professor is wanting to delve into this most foundational question of everybody's worldview. But this believing author wants to illustrate that search for meaning and purpose, if all we can know is what's under the sun. If all we can know is what we can see and hear and feel and taste, if that's the only way that we can know anything is what we can experience under the sun, how do you find meaning and purpose if that's all you can know? And so what I'm saying is he purposely is eliminating from his worldview this hypothetical professor, preacher, he's eliminating from his worldview any special revelation from above the sun. This is the pure scientist, the pure historian, the pure philosopher who only wants to know what he can sense with his five senses. And so, what we've seen through the course of the book is that he, just looking at the world, he sees what should be obvious to anybody. There is a God. <clears throat> Excuse me. There is a God who created everything. Should be obvious, but not obvious to everybody. And so he does believe, he, he, just based on what he sees, he believes in a God. He also believes that this God is all-powerful. Matter of fact, he believes this God is sovereign, and that sovereignty is engaged with the events on earth. He do, does believe that God is active and engaged with what happens on earth. But that's all he can know under the sun. Without special revelation, without God speaking, without scripture, that's all he can know. God is powerful, he's sovereign, and he also knows that he's just. And it's interesting, he, he discerns that just from observation, that there is good and evil, that there's right and wrong, that there is a sense of absolute justice that we should hold people to. And most people believe that, because it's obvious under the sun. Well, what he does find, and we saw this, what we call the carpe diem passages, or the portions, where he would actually say he finds some temporary pleasures under the sun. Some things that can give you a temporary sense of meaning and purpose. And he lists them, they're almost always the same. Good wine, good, good bread, good, a good meal, basically. Fellowship with your family, and hard work. He tends to mention those three. Those are valuable things under the sun. And you get a temporary sense of meaning and purpose from these things. And again, don't you observe that in the world around you? You watch movies, you listen to people talk in the media, they recognize that. Family, how often is family the main subject of a, of a story that you might listen to or watch? Work, hard work, bringing meaning and purpose into your life. Good meal, three times a day, sometimes five, six, seven times a day, we enjoy a good meal to remind us that this is something worth living for. But you know, you, you, every time he comes to the same conclusion, but it's temporary. Someday we're all going to die. And under the sun, that's it. That's all you know. At the end, you're going to go to the grave, and you can't know what happens after that point under the sun. 
So what meaning does work? What meaning does family? What ultimate meaning does a good meal have if you're just going to die? So without a word from God, he's actually asking, going back to what Arthur Brooks wrote in Atlantic Magazine, he's asking those three questions. If all you can know is what you can observe under the sun, then how can we know that everything happens for a reason in life? How can we know that we have a mission in life? And how can we know that life, our life, is going to make a difference in the world, that we're going to leave any kind of impact, any kind of legacy when we're gone? Well, I came across an article in Psychology Today, written by a psychiatrist, again, an unbeliever. And this, he addresses this question of meaning and purpose in life in this way. He says, even if God exists, and even if he had an intelligent purpose in creating us, no one really knows what this purpose might be or that it is especially, that it is especially meaningful. We are free to become authors of our own purpose or purposes. We are free to become authors of our own purpose. Is that not the spirit of the age in which we live? You define your meaning. You define your purpose. That's logical if all you can see and know is what's under the sun. What's important now that we notice that there is an important transition, an important change in the book when you come actually to verse 8, the last verse of Pastor Owen's passage from last week. Very subtle, but it's important that you notice that in verse 8, it's no longer the preacher or the professor who's speaking. It's the author quoting the preacher, professor. And that's an important shift because from that point on, from verse 8 on, it's the author speaking in his own voice. He's no longer speaking or writing in the, in the voice of this hypothetical professor. He's now speaking from a believer's perspective who believes that God has spoken. And we're going to see today that this is going to bring us to a very satisfying conclusion, to a very challenging and difficult book. He quotes, in verse 8, he quotes the preacher, professor, saying which he said so many times in the course of this book. Vanity of vanity, says the preacher, all is vanity. Remember we compared the word vanity to the idea of soap bubbles. It's, it's, it's meaningless, it's empty, it's purposeless. That was his conclusion under the sun. But here in these last few verses, the author is going to bring us under the word of God. And we'll see where we find our true meaning and purpose. The true end of the matter. What this last section is, is actually an epilogue. Like I said, the author speaks in the very few, first few verses of chapter 1. And now he speaks again at the end. And he begins, you'll notice, by actually commending. He does an evaluation of the professor. And he commends him. He says in verse 9, Besides being wise, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. In other words, he's saying, that's one reason I think maybe the translations tend towards preacher, because he wasn't a professor in the sense of an ivory tower, head in the clouds, you know, just pursuing knowledge for knowledge's sake or wisdom for wisdom's sake. He wasn't that kind of a scholar. He wanted to understand the meaning and purpose in life. He wanted to find these, these words of wisdom to help people live well. And so he did have kind of a preacher's uh, passion, desire. He searched out these things because he wanted to help people know 
truth, to know wisdom so that they could live well. Because that's wisdom, that's the distinction we've made between wisdom and knowledge. Knowledge is essential, but knowledge is not the same thing as wisdom. Wisdom is knowledge applied well to the various circumstances of life. That's what wisdom is. You have to have knowledge in order to have wisdom, but wisdom is more than knowledge. Wisdom is the ability to apply well the knowledge that you have. And that's what the professor wanted to do. And he also goes on to praise the professor's work ethic. He says he was weighing and studying and arranging many proverbs with great care. As he did many times throughout the book, he praises the professor's energy, his, his devotion, his commitment, his all-out search for knowledge and wisdom. He was relentless. He was diligent. It says, interestingly, that, that the professor, preacher, he sought to find words of delight. Is that, is that a phrase that you would think of when you think of the book of Ecclesiastes? Words of delight? <laughs> Well, obviously, it's a lot of darkness in the book of Ecclesiastes, a lot of questions, a lot of doubts, a lot of wrestlings. And that was really the, the, the professor's frustration, wasn't it? That in all of his search, he could find no ultimate answers. But the author of the book says, uprightly, he wrote words of truth. And this is something I've emphasized before, too. Everything that the professor says, all the knowledge and wisdom that he imparts is true insofar as it goes. Under the sun, it's true. Within his limited worldview, everything he says is true. Matter of fact, it's an amazingly accurate portrayal of life under the sun, isn't it? How many times have you been struck by that? He describes very well life under the sun. But if all you can see is what's under the sun, it's a very depressing picture. More than once, I've been asked about the book Judges, if you know the content of the book of Judges. More than once, I've had somebody come in, and of course, it's just one of the most vivid displays of human depravity in all of Scripture. And more than once, I've had somebody come to me and say, Judges, it's such a depressing book. Why is it in the Bible? And my answer is always, because that's real life. That's what the world under the sun looks like without hope, without God speaking. Evil reigns. Chaos reigns under the sun. You cannot hear news stories or see pictures of children being gunned down in their classrooms and not believe that there is a sense of evil in the world. It's so obvious it's something that's difficult to understand, the degree of evil that's in the world. And the Bible addresses the evil in the world directly and forcefully. It's the bad news that can lead to the good news. What the professor's teaching has been throughout this book is what we might call in one sense worldly wisdom. It's wisdom. It's true. But it's based on what you can know in the world, under the sun. It's what I called a couple weeks ago, common grace truth. Truths that you can discover just by looking and observing the world around you. Two plus two equals four. That's a common grace truth. You don't have to have God speaking from heaven to know that that's true. And that's what the professor's perspective is. But 
as I keep saying, and at the end of every sermon, we say, but God has spoken. There is wisdom that has been given to us from above the sun. And James calls that wisdom, he says, this is the wisdom from above that is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. So at this point, here's where the huge shift in the book comes in. Now we're going to consider the fact that God has spoken. The source of all, all wisdom, not just partial wisdom under the sun, but the source of all wisdom above and under the sun. In verse 11, he refers to the words of the wise. Notice he's not talking about the professor and his wisdom anymore. He's now talking about the words of all the wise. All those who come speaking truth. The words of the wise are like goads, he said. Goads. The words of the wise he's talking about here is the context of all scripture, not just that that is given through the mouth of the professor. All of scripture. It's like goads. Now, what's a goad? Probably, you probably haven't used one recently. A goad is a, a long stick with a, with a pointy end, with a sharp end on it. And it's used by a herdsman to, literally, we, that's where you get the word from, goad animals when they start to stray off the path, stray into danger. You goad them to get them back on the path. That's the analogy. That's the picture that... The author wants us to see. Yes, the words of the book of Judges and the words of the book of Ecclesiastes are dark, hard words. They're sharp. They're painful for us to hear and consider. We want to avoid them. But what they do is they drive us back onto the path of truth. We need to hear them. That's what Paul is getting at when he said to Timothy... All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. Do you notice? Reproof and correction are never pleasant. They're goads. That's the Spirit using the Word of God to goad us away from danger, away from straying onto the path of truth. He goes on, the, the, the author goes on to say, that the words of the wise are like nails, firmly fixed. Nails also are sharp, but it's not the sharpness and the potential pain that you get from misusing a nail. That's not really his point. He's talking about how you drive a nail deep to hold something firm. And that's what the words of the wisdom of Scripture are for. To drive deep the truths of God's word into our soul. The words of God, the words of wisdom are permanent, unchangeable, trustworthy, and foundational. It's the point that Jesus was trying to make in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7 when he said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on a rock, firmly driven to establish a foundation of truth we can build our lives upon. Well, how do we know that the words of the wise are true? Well, the author goes on to say, because they are given by one shepherd. Now, it's interesting. I read a lot of commentaries, a lot of disagreement about who the shepherd is, but the majority opinion is one I agree with. There's a reason why the ESV capitalizes shepherd. It's because we believe that the shepherd referred to here is the shepherd, God himself, who shepherds his people. Or possibly, actually, a refer an early reference or a foreshadowing of the coming good shepherd, 
the Messiah, the one it's spoken of in Psalm 23 or Ezekiel 20, 34, that these are words spoken by God to us. That's how we know they're true. Isn't it ironic that Ecclesiastes is part of the word of God that shows us what life would be like if we didn't have the word of God? And praise God for that gift to us. Because we tend to take the word of God for granted. We take it lightly. So much of human history, God's people have had limited access to the word of God. I don't know how many Bibles you have in your house. I have probably a couple dozen versions of the Bible sitting around in my house. Don't ever take for granted the privilege of having God's spoken words in writing. In verse 12, there's an interesting warning in light of that. It says, my son, beware of anything beyond these. Everything in God's word is true, absolute truth. It's without error. It's infallible. But we can find truth outside of Scripture. We can figure out that 2 plus 2 is 4 outside of Scripture. But all truth claims must be measured by the Word of God. That's the point. Be careful looking for truth beyond what God has revealed in His Word. How many cults have gotten themselves in trouble by looking for truth beyond what God has revealed in His Word? How many scientists, how many historians, how many scholars of all kinds of sorts have gotten themselves in trouble because they look for truth that is outside of the Word of God and not brought under the authority of the Word of God? Verse 12 is the favorite verse of students everywhere. Of making many books there is no end and much study is a weariness to the flesh. How appropriate this comes at the end of a semester. Too many books in the world. Do you know that Amazon, I checked this week, Amazon lists 48.5 million books on its site for sale. And they say that at least a million books are, are published every year. Too many books. Add to that, now I don't know how they figured this out. I have no idea how they did the research on this. But if it's true, it's fascinating. It, the, the way it goes is this. Until 1900, the total sum of human knowledge doubled every 100 years. But by the end of World War II, the total sum of human knowledge doubled every 25 years. Now, today, they say that the total sum of human knowledge is doubling every 12 months, and it's on a trajectory to double every 12 hours. That's astounding, but it's too many books. Too much searching beyond what God has revealed. A lot of what's driving and motivating the search for knowledge and wisdom is beyond what God has already revealed. We, you know, my wife used to try to goad me into writing a book. And I said to her, the day I figure out something that I have to share in a book that somebody hasn't already written better about, I will write that book. And I still haven't. And I don't think I will. The sharp and firmly established words of the one shepherd are all that we need. And there is a great danger in both neglecting his word and searching for wisdom beyond the word. Even in a quote-unquote Christian book, if it's not brought under the authority of the word. 
This is what Paul was warning about in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 7, when he, he says, he warns against those who are always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. That insatiable longing for more and more knowledge, more and more wisdom, but not being satisfied with what God has revealed in his word as the judge of all wisdom and knowledge. That's why our doctrinal standard for our denomination, the Westminster Confession of Faith in chapter 1 about Scripture says this, the whole counsel of God concerning all things necessary for his own glory and for mankind's salvation, faith and life is either expressly written down in Scripture or may be deduced from Scripture by good and necessary consequences. What it's saying is the word of God is sufficient for everything in life. Does it answer every little question you have in life? No but it gives you everything you need to know in order to live wisely according to what it teaches and make good decisions in life. It's all we need. So that's the point that the author, again, writing from a covenant perspective, one who is redeemed by the blood of the sacrifices, one who is looking for the Messiah, the great shepherd to come, that's what he's saying. Now, what is Q, what, what, is, what is this Koholeth, this preacher, this, this uh, professor, what is he missing? What is the, the way to meaning and purpose in life? Well, this is what he gets to in verse 13. This is the most important verse in the, the whole book. Verse 13. The end of the matter. All has been heard. Big announcement. Here it is. This is why this whole book was written. Here's what, the whole reason for going into all this professor stuff, all this under the sun stuff. Here's the purpose. The Holy Spirit gets the last word. Fear God. So simple. Fear God. The word fear in Scripture is a way of summarizing our whole appropriate response to God, who is our creator, who is our sovereign provider, and who ultimately is our judge. have a sense of the fear of God. And I'll talk in a moment about what was missing from his fear. But he did fear God. And he commended people to fear God. But there was something missing fear. His fear was the cowering fear of a powerful but unknown God with an unknown plan for his life and for the world. It was a fear of a God who hasn't spoken, a God who has not revealed truth. But the fear of the Lord that the author wants us to understand is what the book of Proverbs calls the beginning of all wisdom. And here the writer of Ecclesiastes says it's also the end. It's the beginning and end of all wisdom, the fear of the Lord. That's how important it is. In Romans chapter 3, Paul says that the absence of the fear of God is the mark of the unbeliever. He says, quoting the Old Testament, about people who don't believe in God, there is no fear of God before their eyes. But the fear of the Lord is the key to all wisdom. That's what Isaiah 33 says. The Lord is exalted for he dwells on high. He will be the sure foundation for your times, a rich store of salvation and wisdom and knowledge. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure. The fear of the Lord is the key to this treasure of all knowledge and wisdom. One commentator broke down the fear of the Lord into four elements. And what's interesting, I want you to notice as I work through these four elements quickly, that the professor had three of the four. 
The fear of the God that he talked about covered three of the four, but it was missing the fourth. The first one is an awareness of God's infinity, immensity, power, and glory. An awareness of how, you know, he believes in God, but he sees God as being incomprehensible, powerful. This God who brought this complex, beautiful universe into existence had to be powerful beyond imagination. That's where the beginning of the fear of God is, is understanding how glorious and powerful and immense and incomprehensible he is. A few years ago, I had a chance to do one of my bucket list trips out west, and we flew into Nevada and made the loop around the national parks. We went to Zion, and we went to Bryce Canyon, we went to the Grand Canyon, and a trip like that will put the fear of the Lord in you. God made that. It's so far beyond us to understand a God who can make that. You stand out under a clear sky, not in town, but you go way out of town, and you look up at a clear sky at night, and you see those stars. And it's glorious enough to look at, but then to think about what science tells us how far away those stars are. And the God who created the universe put them there and sustains them there. The fear that you feel in your gut when you walk up to the edge of Niagara Falls that sense of awe at the raw power of that water flowing over the edge. That's the beginning of the fear of the Lord. But then the second element of the fear of the Lord is an awareness of God's personal presence and awareness of us. In other words, this powerful God is obviously engaged in this creation. He's doing something. The professor had no idea what, but he's doing something. He's aware of us. And that brings us to the third element of the fear of the Lord, which is an awareness of God's holiness. That this powerful God who's engaged in the world obviously has a sense of holiness, justice. He hates evil. It's the only way to explain the presence of evil and our own hatred of evil is that there must be a God who is going to someday bring punishment against the kind of evil we witness. We have this innate sense of justice. We have this innate sense of good and evil. It's amazing to me, listening to the news accounts about the, the shootings recently, that these people who go to such great lengths to avoid any kind of religious language will talk about good and evil when it comes to human beings who would go and shoot children in the classrooms. They can't help but label it evil. And again, it's what separates us from the rest of the creatures on the planet. Evolutionary science cannot explain the sense of justice that we're born with, the sense of good and evil. If we were just higher order animals, we would live by the same creed that the animals live by, which is might makes right. He who has the most power should get what he wants. You see, the professor was convinced of these first three elements. He was convinced that God is all-powerful. He was convinced that God is sovereign, that God is engaged, that God is in the midst of, what, of his creation, and he's aware. And he's, he was even, we talked many times about God's judgment. He was aware that the, just by observing things under the sun, he is aware that judgment is coming, that justice must be done. 
And so he did talk about a fear of God that covered those first three, but what he was missing was the fourth element. When the rest of the Bible talks about the fear of the Lord, it includes an awe in the awareness of God's love and mercy. That's what's unique to regenerate, born-again, redeemed people, is to stand in awe of God's love and mercy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. The amazing grace that John talks about later when he says, see what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God and so we are. The first three elements of the fear of God are all true. But we don't fear with a cowering fear before this powerful and just and holy God because the fear of judgment has been taken away by what we call the gospel. The fear of God's judgment is gone for those who believe in what God has revealed to us in his word. The fear of the Lord that the rest of the Bible talks about is reverence before the glory of God, the power of God, the authority of God, the sovereignty of God, and the love and mercy of God. And when you fear God that way, it reflects submission, trust, love, and worship. And so that's why verse 13 goes on to give the effect of the fear of the Lord. If you truly fear the Lord, this is the effect. He says, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. I want you to notice that this is the first reference to special revelation in the entire book. This is the first reference to God speaking in the book. This is somebody writing from the perspective of knowing that God has spoken through his word, that we've been given revelation from above the sun. And he says, keep the commandments. Cherish the commandments. Submit to the commandments. Believe, trust in what the word of God has revealed to you to be true. Now when he talks about Keeping the commandments, is he talking about salvation by works? No. Because he's, he's already established the means of our salvation. It's fearing the Lord. It's trusting in what the Lord has revealed about himself, about his Savior, his Son. Believing produces obedience. Keeping the commandments. We, in our circles, emphasize grace all the time, and we should. Because of the awesome grace of God. It's what, the only reason we're here. But don't ever make a false dichotomy between God's grace and us keeping the commandments. Because that's what the grace is meant to produce. That's what God's grace. We don't deserve to be saved. We did nothing to be saved. But once God saved us, he begins to conform us into the image of his son. And that is the way. That is the way to meaning and purpose in life is to fear God and to show that fear by loving him, submitting to his authority, trusting in his word. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. He didn't separate the two. If you love me, if you have a proper full fear of the Lord, then you will keep my commandments because that's the work that he's promised to do in saving you. 
The Apostle Paul reflects this beautifully in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1. He says, since we have these promises, and he's referring back to the promises of the gospel, that God has sovereignly and by grace and grace alone saved us through the blood of his son shed on the cross, having his son paid the price, having borne the judgment that we deserve for our sins, and then raising him from the dead to be our savior, our redeemer. Since we have these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body and spirit, bringing holiness to completion in the fear of God. Obedience flows out of redemption. Obedience flows out of a loving, thankful fear of the Lord for his grace towards us. Fear of the Lord drives us to love and worship God. It drives us to pursue holiness. It drives us to serve others and most of all, to serve Him. That brings us to verse 14, the very last verse in the book. And he again brings up judgment. But this is writing from a believing perspective. He's added that element of faith, of believing the Word of God, of trusting and fearing the Lord out of love and thankfulness. He says, For God will bring every deed into judgment, with every secret thing, whether good or evil. He's confirming there what the Word of God teaches clearly elsewhere, that our outward deeds and words, as well as our secret thoughts, are, as the writer of Hebrews says in chapter 4, exposed to the eyes of Him to whom we must give an account. The professor knew that judgment was coming, but under the sun there was no way to avoid condemnation. But the good news of the rest of God's Word is that that judgment has been taken care of. And in Romans 8, chapter 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That's why we rejoice in the truth revealed that judgment is coming. Because God's word teaches us that the one who is coming is our Savior. The one who, is seated, who will be seated on the throne of judgment before whom all people will stand is our Redeemer our Savior, the one who shed his blood for our sins, that we would not be judged. We rejoice that all the wrongs will be made right and that our sin will be taken away and that Christ will come again and make all things perfect. So let's go back to the original statement. The end of the matter, as the author of Ecclesiastes says, what is the meaning and purpose of life? Fear God. Keep his commandments. And look to the last day. Jesus Christ is the answer to all the searching of the professor. Jesus Christ is the answer to all the searching going on in your soul. The Jesus Christ that is revealed to us in Scripture, not some other Jesus Christ, this Jesus Christ. Let me take you back to close. Let me take you back to Arthur Brooks and that article in Atlantic Magazine where he told people how to find meaning and purpose. He said, first, you need to see that all things happen for a purpose. God has revealed from heaven that those who love God, for those who love God, all things work together for good. All things have not just purpose, but a good purpose for those who trust in the word. Secondly, you have to have a mission in life. Jesus said, Matthew 28, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. Every one of you has that goal and mission to life, is to communicate Jesus to the people around you, to point people to Jesus. If you have no other mission, you have a lot of secondary missions, I'm sure, but that's your prime, that's your prime directive in life, your prime mission. Proclaim Jesus. Share Jesus. Thirdly, 
Believe that your life is making a difference. Praise God, because in Christ, all things are working together for good. All things are accomplishing God's purpose. The mission will be completed, and we will have an eternal legacy, and we will live forever to enjoy it. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, Be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. So I'm going to close with one more quote from Paul because I think it summarizes what the author wants us to understand about all the lessons we've learned through observing and thinking through the professor in the book of Ecclesiastes, Romans 14, verse 8. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the book of Ecclesiastes. A lot of darkness, a lot of doubting, a lot of questions, but these are doubts and questions that all of us have had, some of us even maybe in this very moment. Lord, thank you that this book points us to the rest of Scripture. And this book points us to Jesus Christ, who is the answer to all of our searching. Father, thank you for reminding us that your word is true, and that in your word, and only in your word, can we find our true meaning and purpose in life, and that's all we need. Thank you that by your grace, you have given us Christ. In his name we pray. Amen.